This show is part of the Darkmore Podcast Network. To join our community Discord or see more content from our members, visit darkmorepodcasts.com. Yessi, and I play Grimton Steadyhand, a fighter, paladin of Bahamut, special legionnaire of the Pandominion, and revolutionary in the Red Capes. And this is Advantage. Last time in episode 2.58, the Unknown Associates planned and pulled off an incredibly high-stakes heist infiltrating the Reliquy Tower in the Springwood in order to come away with an ancient, powerful artifact, the Godblinder Spear, which the deity Corallon used to take out the eye of the orc god Grumsh during the Dawn War. Their plan was to swap the relic with a full-sized replica, while the clerical officials of the Celadrin Church were distracted by a thaumaturgical miracle. They did it. Seamlessly even going so far as to wipe all the recorded scrying evidence of their having been there. And unpursued, they returned to the Azure Keep, where their companion Nexby had the pneumatic engine of the dragon skiff Tyrant's Bane warmed and ready for their escape. And that's where we'll pick up. I know we're wanting to go southwest, but if I'm your getaway driver, I'd rather not spend my time over the Pandominion's airspace. We're taking a detour over the hinterlands, shouts Nexby from the driver's seat of the Tyrant's Bane. Uh, the four of you are high in the air, flying fast in the dragon skiff. Wind whistles through your hair, and the, f- the fabric of Mavros' red wings beating rhythmically as it soars. Alaris, you look down and see the tall grass prairies of the Sun Plains becoming more and more barren as it transitions into Badlands. The red rocks of the hinterlands has been universally considered hostile. People do not travel to the hinterlands, only through it on their way to somewhere else. Well, let's make sure we don't have to land in the hinterlands. Why is that? They, they can be a little dangerous. Uh, it'd be better if we could keep going. I would prefer to even land in the deserts of the defeat than land in the hinterlands. Morlande, there's a great discomfort in this flight. And while you genuinely believe that all natural areas are beautiful and worth protecting, this is not a land you know. The hinterlands are not a land you know, and nor is the mention of the defeat. And even the plains below you in the Pandominion are disconcerting with their general lack of trees. But, like, the Badlands with ravine-carved stone and slot canyons and hoodoos, it all just seems lifeless. I'm captivated by all of these different landforms. I think it's really incredible what just rock can look like. Um, the fact that there are these, you know, tall, thin spires or what looks like almost like a giant rock balancing on much smaller rocks. Like, that is amazing what uh, the natural world can do with what looks like almost no life. But it's also very disconcerting that there is almost no life. How does anything stay alive down there? Ulrich, the late morning sun, tells you that you're headed northwest at the moment, and your compass confirms it. The map in your lap, blowing in the wind, says that off to your right, way in the distance, 
is something called the Shattered Coast. You stretch your eyes and can barely make out the rocky outcrops and jagged islands along the coast of the darkest deep. Generally, going going through the, the hinterlands as we are, um, <clears throat> as Morlinde was pointing out, the, like, you know, vast, natural, like, beautiful rock formations that exist, but they're also punctuated by varying sizes of, like, pools that we see. Um, some of them are, I don't know, more like a large pond, and some of them are all the way down to puddles that kind of dot the landscape, add a, a little bit of variety in terms of color. Um, and so these these little pools help to, to generate some contrast. Auric, give me a nature check. Let me I pull think. out my dice. And I'm really tempted to make this a disadvantage, but I'm not going to. I will be rolling with my Dark Silver Forge <laughs> dice, my Cthulhu gold set. So I'm rolling, what did you say, a nature check? Nature check. Nat 20. Dang! Okay. Yeah, correct. <laughs> um, you have a flashback to, I want to say, some late elementary, early middle school geography lessons that you had where you were going over different types of geography. About fifth grade? Yeah, about fifth grade. Um, and learning about different features that one might encounter in the in the landscape. And you remember water holes, the, the pools of water uh, that appear sporadically throughout different regions, especially like a permanent pool in what would otherwise be uh, an ephemeral river. Mm -hmm. And you remember specifically what an ephemeral river, a dry creek, would be called in a desert or badland environment, such as the one that you're flying over right now, despite having never been to such environs yourself. It's called an arroyo. You want to spell that? A-R-R-O-Y-O. -R -R that too. And it's just a dry creek bread. But it's, it's, it is a fun uh, vocabulary thing. Nexby pulls the tyrant's bane to the left, and your heading changes. You're now going south by southwest. Grimton, this bank brings familiar lands into view. Far ahead, you see that the hinterlands rise up a steep gray stone ridge packed with snow. The Winter Ridge, named after the goddess Kala, who nearly took the cusp for herself long ago during the Dawn War. Nexby shouts back, Grimton, where do I need to take this baby and set it down so that y'all can finish the rest of your business? I'll assume that you'd like to take care of it before we get to her dearth. I think, and anybody here, feel free to give me a better idea, but we might have to go to the Palace of Winter to get this done. It's secluded, it's out of the way, unlikely to have any sort of trouble from anyone there. You're sure about that? I don't think there's a better option. We can't just land in the hinterlands unless we want to get raided by orcs. You don't think just like landing on the side of a mountain or something would be better? Yeah, or the desert. There's nothing there. What if we landed on top of one of the hoodoos? <laughs> that sounds like a bad idea. They're not that big. Again, if you feel like getting raided by orcs, I'd be happy to f fight off a horde, but I think the Palace of Winter might be our best bet. Listen, the Palace of Winter is terrifying as the Nine Hells, though, even from this distance. Look, it's a close race, but trying to suck the magic out of the spear welded by Grumsh One-Eye in a region noted for its orcs seems like an even worse idea. 
Alright, whatever, let's go to the palace. Why not? What's the worst that could happen, right? Best question ever. Where, Joe, if I'm looking on advantagednd.com slash world... Uh, go down to the Kingdom of Her Dearth highlight. Mm -hmm. It's not listed as a as a point feature, but it would be atop oh. the Winter Ridge, which is just north of Maldo. Gotcha. Keep. Okay. That's kind of where I thought it would be, um, but... You see the Winter Ridge uh, and Kala's Palace of Winter still frozen in perpetual ice. And from this distance, it's merely a deep blue silhouette against the horizontal haze of the cloud caps peaks and the giant land. In front of you, you can make out a bead of black dots. It's like an ant trail of caravans on a wide, dusty highway through the canyons and ravines, which you all know to be the northern route of the intercontinental trader's path. It still must be several miles out to the south still. Directly below you, however, is an awful sight that you know from stories. An orc camp, deep within a long box canyon. It's a ramshackle place of tents and shelters which were obviously looted from raids. Very few of the dwellings look like they have any like look like they have been purposefully built. If anything, it's like wood planks ripped off from a looted cart which have been leaned up on the open side of a stone overhang. And even from this height, several hundred feet up, it's easy to distinguish. There are caravans and piles of various goods uh, that would have been looted beside them. Morlinde, you see that at the dead end of this canyon is a corral of sorts, fencing in a terrible, miserable creature mm. resembling like a wildebeest crossed with a boar. I wonder what those are for. Box canyons notoriously used as corrals. Oh, so we're flying over an orc camp and they have a big, scary, hairy beast corral. They have multiple big, hairy, scary beasts. Oh, you're talking about Catablipas. I'm Googling that one too. Spell it. Which are uh, orc pack animals. Uh, C-A-T-O-B-L-E-P-A-S. Catablipas. Catablipas. I think Catablipas is also the singular and plural, like deer and the plural deer. You don't think it's Catablipas? Catablipas. <laughs> don't let their really cute name fool you. These things are horrifying. They may look kind of horrifying, Ulrich, but I mean, they're pack animals. Think just really ugly cows, you know? It looks like what you think a Yeti looks like, <laughs> but then turn that into a camel. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a bad description. On all fours, though. <laughs> and give it some tusks. Yeah, these things are ugly. There with the monstrosities are the legendary war wagons. Maybe a dozen of them, <laughs> armored with shields and steel. Uh, spikes and spears jet out in every direction. Uh, their, their yokes lay empty without anything ready to pull them. Ulrich, you see cages with some sort of quadrupedal animal that you cannot quite make out. It's some sort of like canine, but it's not quite like a direwolf that fight alongside the orcs in Kolgafir, where you are from. Uh, these are like hyenas. Maybe, but not quite. Hyenas, what other guesses do you have? Uh, can I roll for it? Yeah, go like, ahead. What should I Nature? roll? Nature? 16. Yeah, you got it. If you know it. 
Yeah, that's a warg. Yeah, those are the ones you should probably be more careful around. They're a little feisty. The wargs are are sort of very wolf-like in in nature. I would um, it's, it's probably like, it's like explain. It's like a wolf with like big shoulder muscles. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But these particular ones are trained to fight alongside the orcs in raids. Um, but a lot of times you also find them commonly used as like mounts for goblins um in in different places because they're you know that that's about the size they are is like something that a goblin could ride as a um a vicious steed a vicious steed Auric, you could also ride this as a vicious steed <laughs> side quest added <laughs> you hear a horn from a sentry atop a hoodoo and see a team of orcs run to a massive war drum in the middle of the camp Cries of rage roar into the sky, and many hundreds of orcs emerge from their uh. tents. <laughs> <laughs> They're brutish, and the orcs are covered in bone accoutrement. <laughs> no two wear the same armor scrap or wield similar weapons. All have been looted and then divided. They shout their terrible cries into the air, trying to summon down the your dragon skiff in challenge. And even though they loose arrows up at you, none reach your height. Not a big fan of orcs as as someone who grew up in the Azure Keep, um, where the, the orcs frequently raid. Not happy to be anywhere near an orc camp. There are other cages too, which have some bipedal creatures in them. Probably those have been captured. From what I've grown up knowing, they don't use their slaves for any sort of labor or to join their forces particularly, it's basically just to reproduce, to like beef up their numbers and get little babes to indoctrinate into their horde and then keep their numbers up that way because the bigger the army, the more fierce the orcs can be. Which leads in turn to there being a lot of half-orc in the mix. So what they would refer to as a half-human, half-dwarf or uh, half halfling or quarterling if you will <laughs> no elves no elves next be uh they murder the elves pretty much on site i wish it was on site it's a little more brutal than that it's kind of sport to them so uh Alaris, careful mm-hmm mm-hmm what other brutish things do you see here just like in the camp because you said there were hundreds yeah yeah tents set up there's still fires with uh, like lots and lots of meat roasting over them because everyone's got to eat. Oh, what kind of meat? We got to um, know what kind of meat, though. Big, uh, nasty cattle things. Interesting. But you can tell, like, it's the carcass. <laughs> They're of those. using a, a dead catablipus as food as well. Okay. Fighting's fighting, and you got to feed an army, so. They do have, like, a latrine of sorts, I guess, set up conveniently right next to the slaves because mm-hmm. that's just that's just how it goes yeah you gotta do what you gotta do are they using slaves as gong farmers <laughs> or is it <laughs> breeding and breeding only 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 breeding because you don't want to mix poo into that do you no we do not nope. i also kind of imagine like a big fighting ring you know people want to test their metal and stuff in arena yeah just fights going yeah. on all the time people challenging between people. raids yeah yeah keeping keeping your skills sharp um, next being nervous laughs <laughs> imagine if their spears and arrows could hit us at this height. Uh, imagine if they down the tyrant's bane. 
Uh, imagine if they discovered the Godblinder in, in your bag. W w what do you think they would do to us? Oh, um, let's like, see. not think about that at all. So myself, Morlinde, and Alaris, probably dead on sight. Uh, you and Alric, they might keep alive for a little bit, but it won't be pretty. <sighs> well, luckily we're not going to be laying in there. Yeah, let's stay real far away from the ground, please. At the entrance of the camp, at the mouth of this box canyon, you see a palisade wall and a long gauntlet of spikes and defenses ready to protect against any mercenary or knight foolish enough to attempt an attack on this orcish stronghold. As the orcs camp war drums get more and more faint, the dusty highway of carts gets closer. Finally, you see that there must be hundreds of wagons and pack animals going in both directions. Elephant tortoises, camels, and mules all loaded with goods and people. They freeze still as they look up to you. Many scream and run trying to find cover. The Tyrant Bane's great speed is quite a boon, but is not without its serious setbacks. You see some noble heroes below you uh, drawing weapons and loosing arrows. None of which connecting with you, of course. You can bet that there are plenty of rangers and mercenaries down there who, uh, like, run this track for a living and are prepared to defend themselves. Uh, everybody give me insight checks. 17. 11. 23. 5. Grimton and Morlinde, uh, neither of you have witnessed this firsthand, of course, but as you think about it, you can put together a system that makes sense. The mercs probably used the city of battle, the town, village even, battle as their base. They probably sell themselves to a Zadal-bound trek and then guide through the hinterlands and the orcs. And then they probably post up again once they get to the western edge of the hinterlands where it begins to meet the desert. And they'll wait there for a Pandominion-bound caravan and then do the same back home to battle. Uh, everybody give me survival checks. Ugh. I'm I'm trained in this, and it's still not going to be great. Well... Nine. Six. Uh, Sixteen. Five. Morlinde, as you ponder uh, this system of mercenaries, you uh, look out into the distance, and you see smoke rising up at a wide spot, maybe ten miles or so into the Badlands. And on a map, it might look like the hinterlands are maybe four days across. So this must be like a common campsite for the first night. You know that the map doesn't have a name for this site, but anybody could guarantee that there's a colloquial name for it. What do you think it is? For the, the campsite that's like a quarter way or halfway through the hinterlands? Yep. Um, quarter way. Oh. Just quarterway? Yeah. That's your answer? <laughs> That's a reasonable answer. I mean <clears throat> I mean these are these are traders, these are these are people used to hard lives and they're not really gonna mess around with some kind of flowery name like quarterway is a is effective, uh -huh. communicative, clear, and easy to remember. What's interesting about that is that it implies a Pandominion centric etymology. Mm-hmm. 
because for Zadal to a Pandominion track, that's three quarter way through the hinterlands. It's disputed. It's disputed. It can cause confusion. Halfway, everybody agrees on. <laughs> <laughs> There's east quarter way and west quarter way. Sure, the one yeah. that you would be seeing right now is east quarter way. I like east quarter and west quarter. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, yeah. west quarter, east quarter. That's very good. Everybody give me perception checks. Four. 18. Um, Nine. 21. <laughs> Uh, Auric and Morlinde, you notice that the westbound carts are much fuller than the eastbound carts. Why do you think that is? The westbound carts are fuller than the eastbound Are the westbound carts. heading towards the Pandominion? Look at the map. You tell me. We're just looking down <clears throat> and noticing to ourselves. So this is, this is internal. Um... I mean, it could mean a lot of things. It could mean the Pandominion's really desperate to get some trade going, fighting a, you know, two-front war. Uh, and this is kind of their only route, so they're really putting a lot into it. Um, it could hypothetically indicate a potential, like, reluctance of Zadal to trade. Like, you're always going to have some trade, even if it's smuggling. Um but it, it could be like them kind of trying to stay out of things over here and only trade minimally. So out loud, Arik says, sure are a lot of traders westbound. What do you make of that, Grimton? Well, I don't know about there being more of them, but their carts sure are more scarce when they're coming into the Pandominion. They've just had more time out and defeat, more time to get raided, I think. I hope that's not the case. So all those plump cars heading to Sadal, well, they may not be that full by the time they get there. It's a common occurrence. I think some of these merchants know to expect that kind of loss and plan for it. What is, does that loss come with like loss of people? Oh, I mean, well, definitely, definitely, yeah. A bit of a calculated um... Ulrich you have two choices currently if you're wanting to trade via the Pandominion you either take your chance with the raids and hope to hire enough guards to protect yourself or you pay the absorbent taxes of her dearth and go through their lands and if you don't have the capital to pay those taxes guess which one you're doing man it's almost like capitalism is really bad mercantilism i think is what this one would be yeah you're right you know sometimes you gotta trade to, to get things you don't have all right give me a survival check it's better this time ah oh, it's 10. it was like 18 10. like it, it just it thought just real hard about teetered, being a really huh? good role yeah <laughs> yeah all that seems to be a pretty good explanation you don't need to think any harder on it <laughs> Auric, your keen eye for geography helps you notice the geologies below you in the hinterlands. Uh, like the elevation of the Badlands seems to have once been some sort of large plateau, like days wide. Something at some point in the plateau's history must have washed down through the sandstone to create the gnarled slot canyons and hoodoos. How do they get made? So like, okay, we've got High mountaintops above our current altitude. Uh, you look to the south to an easy solution. They're snowy, they're beautiful. Right. I assume that would be a uh, uh, meltwater or just like 
big chunks of ice melting um, and slowly over time eroding those areas. That's so crazy. Erosion. I liked your song. That was really cool. <laughs> you know, Ulrich, that would probably make sense if it had happened slowly and gradually as it might have in other places on the cusp, but these badlands, the hinterlands, they're directly the cause of Grimsh and the birthplace of his orcs. Uh, he birthed them from the mud and he washed away all the earth that was once here, springing forth the orcs and then leaving behind these hinterlands. So think what you were saying, but expedited hundredfold by Grimsh. So Grimsh used like like water to wash away, erode away all of the other stuff? To make the mud from which the orcs sprang. Isn't that such an interesting thing to think about? Grumsh just was like, I'm gonna use this to make magic mud to make a new race of beings. Like, also why, why did Grumsh, was there only like certain parts of the dirt that were usable for making orcs? Like, why are why, why do the hoodoos exist? Why not use all of it? Like, why? why like, <laughs> I, I'm, sure, I'm sure that there was just like, homie, homie's starting a whole race. Like, I, there's a lot of just like scooping. Like, oh, yeah, he, 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 lots of like scooping. There's some scooping up here. A lot of scooping. You just don't miss the area, and you know, there's not a whole Are, are the hoodoos the hoodoos of the spaces between Grumsh fingers? Whoa. Take that for scale when you think of Grumsh, you know? I like that. Jeez. <laughs> Next, he says, Wait, Grimton, you're telling me that Meltwater had nothing to do with this? Oh, no. It was just Grum Grumsh. Grumsh? Grumsh? Alric, how do you say it? Grumsh. 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 So Grumsh. No. <laughs> no, uh, next be the snow on the Winter Ridge doesn't melt. I There's some sort of lingering magic from Kala. I'm not sure why. The last remainder of Kala's forever winter looms above you. The snowpack glints brightly in the late afternoon sun. It is tall and ominous, the Palace of Winter and you hear the wailing moans of Kala's execution in the wind, even from miles and miles out. And it's become noticeably louder as you draw nearer to your destination. Now, close from this distance, you can see the delicacy with which Kala carved her ice palace. The tall blue and purple ice spires jet up toward the sun and gleam prismatically in the light like stained glass. The curves of flying buttresses remind you of the canyons of meltwater that have created the deep slots within glaciers. Every peak is capped by an icicle-like stalagmite which rises from the feature. It is an incredible mixture of natural formation and delicate sculpture. Each feature on its own could exist in the wild, but brought together now they form a magnificently hostile palace, fit for the goddess of winter herself. The keep's cold but stunning indifference is only broken by the wailing of pain in the wind, which surrounds you in a booming moan.
Hey friends, it's Joe. So glad you're here with us for episode 2.59. This is the first episode of part three of this arc. This will be the final act of the plot as it focuses on overthrowing King Greysunder and her dearth. I am thrilled to be at this stage in the story. I loved getting to Dean the Unknown Associates return to the mountains of the cloud-capped peaks, and I'm so thankful that the Twags have the Tyrant's Bane so we can make huge journeys like this cinematic. We don't have to sweat the dangers of traveling over land and are able to use that energy instead to explore the stories and histories of the cusp the way that we do in this episode and in episode 2.30, Fast Travel. Thanks to all our Patreon supporters for helping us share the beautiful stories we're telling by keeping our expenses small and affordable. Producing a podcast is not a cheap hobby, and y'all's monetary support is a powerful way to say thank you. We're a tiny show, and anything you can do to help us out is a substantial part of our income. Join the Darkmore Podcast Network Discord channel and find other wonderful artists and gaming podcasts. Uh, link down in the doobly-doo. A few episodes ago, I announced the addition of the show Dragonmind to the network. And guess what? Now, they've got an ad spot. Anyone who's played a tabletop RPG will say that they're unlike any other medium available. The experiential possibilities are endless, and that's what we're here to examine. Welcome to Dragonmind, a tabletop discussion podcast brought to you by Incendium D&D. We're here to look through the infinite lenses of TTRPGs to discover our best selves through gaming. Gaming doesn't have to just be an escape. It can help revolutionize your reality. Available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. All right, let's get back to the show. Thank you. After making a loop around the palace, Nexby decides to bring the Tyrant's Bane down in the only suitable landing spot, a cloistered courtyard outside a large hall. Fifteen yards above the snowpack, she presses a button that makes the wings of the skiff stop flapping. With the wings half outstretched, she begins slowly pulling a lever downward, vertically descending the craft the remaining 40 or 50 feet to the ground. The wind bites your face. Um, listening to that moaning sound on the wind, I'm kind of starting to rethink this is like our location to land. I mean, I know we're already here, but... Uh. <laughs> In that questioning, you walk to the south face of the cloister, which, like, looks down at the valley below. And I think that you see your sea glass waypoint, and it catches your attention. And you can you can locate it now. Like, you can see where it is. It's not like through the globe, or not the globe, through the, through the flat map mm-hmm. or way out of distance. Like, you see that it is partway up a mountain to your south. Give me a perception check, Ulrich. I'm gonna squint real hard. We're looking at 14. There was some sort of glint coming from that waypoint. Give me a survival check. Let this be better. 
I am getting betrayed. Uh, 11. You cannot make heads or tails of what it could be. Uh, Morlinde, you stand there beside Auric and peer down at Maldo Keep, which last you knew was staging for a large-scale movement of some sort. Now, Morlinde, very little seems to be there. Does that mean, if we don't see anything down there, does that mean that they've already deployed? They're already out? Hopefully, Morlinde, that means that our people were successful. It's hard to tell, though. Says Grimton, trotting over. Um, yeah, hopefully that means that, that A-Squad was successful in destroying Moldo Keep, and not that the Warforged army is moving on to the Pandominion as we speak. Even... Either way, let's do let's do the thing and be on our way. Also, uh, um, we're up here on the Palace of Winter's doorstep, right? It's very cold. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I'm every six seconds. I'm I'm going to <laughs> cast press the digitation. All right, so I'm going to just keep warming up various parts of my clothing. <laughs> Your nice new coat, <laughs> cloak of useful things. Oh yeah. More Linde, give me a survival check. Nineteen. Yeah, looking down at Maldo Keep, hearing the suggestions of Grimton, Alaris, and Ulrich of, hopefully that means A-Squad one. The Keep doesn't look like it has been blown up. Yeah. You, you question that explanation. Yeah, I'm going to keep it to myself. This place feels like despair, palpable despair. Grimton, the legend of Gorbring at the palace uh, involves him leading a group of caravanners up here for some reason and taking refuge in the Palace of Winter. And while this is a strange and notable feat itself, the victory is that not only did everybody live, but they were able to maintain high spirits despite the castle oozing an almost physical depression. One of the first things that you notice is just how tall the cloister where you've landed is. Kala ruled here. A literal god formed this palace to her own specifications. The door handles to the hall are themselves ten feet off the ground, with the peak of the door a dozen feet above that. How tall must she have been? Are all gods this tall? We've already talked about Grumsh's height. I mean, <laughs> she's at least tall enough to use the door handle. Yeah. We, um, we, but we have met two gods. You've met gods. Yeah, yeah, but she could be, I mean, like, just because the door is a certain height doesn't mean that she is, like, that height. But like, if anything, she's going to be shorter than the door height, by and potentially by a non-small margin. Do like, you, my doors are much taller than me. Do, That's true, but you're not do that Do gods... Tall become regular sized on the cusp or, or do they become bigger on the cusp or were we bigger in the astral plane <laughs> and everything's just to scale so it didn't feel any different but we were just all like twice as tall I mean gods can probably change size right? Everybody give me perception checks. 16 15. 14 12. Oh, dang it 13. 
says next week. <laughs> Inexplicably. Just like we're all standing in silence. Why are you shouting numbers next week? <laughs> standing here, looking at the scale of the door, you can easily locate the origin of the booming wailing as behind these great doors. Um, and I think Nexby is standing at the, the very, very front of them. She's like bending her neck way back to investigate the full height. So do you guys want to go inside to do this? Might be warmer. Sure, that's fine. Also, so the Raven Queen killed Kala. Right. And took over her dominion of winter. Right. Why did Kala need to be killed? Uh, that's how gods take over a portfolio of power, right? Yes, but there's a reason that Kala needed to be killed. But the story goes that Kala was... Do you all want to give me religion checks? Sure. sure. Except for Alaris, who's asking the question. Because I think all of you... There we go. ...would have an answer for this. I rolled a not one, so... Maybe. I'm going to give you advantage on that. That's that's absurd for Grimton. <laughs> 17! I rolled an unnatural 20. That's better. I can roll a 15. Uh, I am going to give Morlinde the most the uh, most complete answer here, and I'm going okay. to skew it from the spirits side of things. Morlinde, you remember from the story that the war between the gods and the primordials, the dawn war, as it was winding down, uh, and it looked as though the primordials had been defeated. Kala decided that she would become the ice queen of the cusp. Built this palace and then threw the entire cusp into the event called the Forever Winter. Oh. And Morlinde, you remember, easily remember, this this grab for power is the biggest reason Stormhawk and the rest of the spirits band together to exile the gods and the primordials from the cusp altogether. At one point, the cusp was just kind of another domain. It was like Kala's domain, kind of. But then- She claimed it as that. Yeah. She was trying to claim it the same way that like, Torog claims the the Underdark mm-hmm. yeah. as as his domain, despite him being a god and could have an astral sea. Uh, and despite Lolth, who is a, a, a god having given up her dominion to take over a level of the abyss. Wakala seized it full stop. Like she was like, this is mine. Like the cusp is nobody else's. This is my winter realm. So so she claimed the whole cusp. She, she froze it over and decided it was her domain. Um, but the spirits banded together and kicked her out. Well, uh, did they? They managed to keep the rest of the gods out, but the Raven Queen was the one that directly killed Kala uh. on be on behest of the other gods who saw Kala as a threat. Well, thanks, Raven Queen. Uh, the Raven Queen, the Raven Queen was a young goddess at this point and was uh, very powerful, though. Uh, I do remember now. I forgot about the Forever Winter, but yes, that makes sense um, because the Raven Queen being newly the god of the dead. No, the god of death. Yes, and the god of... She wanted to be the god of the dead. Yes, but they wouldn't let her because mm-hmm. the person that she took over for was both and was too powerful. Yes. There's a difference between the god of death and the god of the dead? And there's undeath too. Just wait till we get to undeath. What? Yeah, so basically... 
back a long time ago, there was Narul, who got magic from Corallon? Corallon. And I used the magic that was given to them by Corallon to learn necromancy and gain power over the dead. And she became powerful enough to be like an actual threat to the gods, like in general. And then the high gods came together to stop her, but she bartered with them. Basically, she had like this big portfolio of power. She like had death, the dead, and life, and fertility, and birth, and growth. Uh, but she didn't want any of those. All she wanted was the dead and death. And so the high gods were like, yeah, sure, that's cool, no problem. We'll take all those and divvy them up. Then she, uh, like, Narul, used her power over death to basically become even more powerful and was like super, super powerful as death and the dead combined. Because, you know, you're, you're, you can like kill anyone you want, but then also like raise them as undead and like control their immortal soul, all sorts of crazy stuff. But regardless, um, then the Raven Queen came in. She also learned magic from Corallon. So Corallon's just giving everyone magic. Yeah, Corallon's just giving everyone magic. Uh, as they do, you know. This is during the Dawn War, right? Yeah, yeah. The Raven Queen, she was fighting against the Primordials during the Dawn War, right? Um, and her whole army went to go get some water, um, but the water turned into acid and everyone Jesus. died because of um, <laughs> Nerul um, at the Corroded Lake. Which is a real lake on the map. Yeah, because Nerul wanted to turn the Raven Queen's army into an army of the dead. And that was what really showed the gods, like, the power of Nerul. But as, as the Raven Queen's soul traveled to Nerul's dominion, they spoke to her and told her of their concerns. So the high gods were like, hey, Raven Queen, we're a little worried about Nerul's power. Um, and the Raven Queen's like, no worries, I got you. And on Pluton, uh, which is Nerul's dominion, um, the Raven Queen's soul enticed and entranced Nerul, and so he kept giving her powers to make her like him. And she was like just playing along, being like, Oh, yeah, I don't know how I feel about you right now, but you know, maybe we'll see what happens in like a couple centuries or whatever. And he's like, <laughs> Ah, here's some more power, here's some more power, here's some more power. Until eventually, she became powerful enough to basically take over, like, and beat Nerul um, and kill him. Basically, Nerul fought this big battle against one of the primordials, Athum, on an island in the Darkest Deep, as it was newly formed, you know, back in the day. Um, and in that weakened state, the Raven Queen killed um, Nerul. Basically, like, she cashed in the money in the bank and was like, it's my belt now. Um, <laughs> and um, whenever the Raven Queen killed Nerul and took the power, the High Gods were like, all right, you can only have death. You can't have the power over the dead. And that's when she also bartered to have the domain of winter, which worked out uh, for the gods because they want to get rid well, of the power. Well, right? that was a little later. That oh. was a little later. Because she became the god of death, and then the forever winter started. And ah. then everyone was upset about the forever winter, so then... The Raven Queen used the power, or they let her use the power of the dead for a little while so she could kill Kala in a secret execution, probably here at the Palace of Winter. And 
as a return for a favor of killing Kala, they gave her her domain over Winter. So who has domain over the dead now? Everyone, you know? That's what the last rites are for. Because no one has control over the dead. You know, that's why we perform the last rites. We, we are all, you know, have some power over over the dead in some extent to prevent them from becoming the undeath, which is what Orcus would like. Orcus would like to take power over the dead, or, or sorry, take power over the dead to turn them into undead <laughs> to take over the world and plunge it into chaos, right? But by having the power of the dead divided over amongst all the beings of the cusp and like the priests and stuff, you know, and performing the last rites, it is hard for Orcus to fully gain control over it. By keeping it spread out, it's very hard for Orcus to channel that power into taking control of it and making himself the, the god of the dead and the undead. You are huddling in the cloister outside the doors, listening to Alaris tell this story. Alaris can tell this story only once because, of course, his clothes are nice and warm <laughs> for yeah, the rest that's, of vegetation. That's so all he's warm. unbothered by this as the rest of your teeth are chattering. I, I understand that was probably a, a very convoluted story, and I probably didn't explain it very well. But regardless, that's the story of, you know, this place a little bit. As, <laughs> where, where did you learn all that? The library. I took a class. That's all well and good, Alaris, but I'm frizzing my beard off. Let's open this door. Wait! Can we go inside? Nexby points up at the door. Can any of y'all read that? Read what? Uh, give me investigation checks. All right. Investigation, you say. It's an 18 on the die. That's a skill I'm good at. I got a nine. God damn it. That is just not... And that is a 27. Eight, 18. <laughs> 11. You other two can see that there are scratchings in the door, but Grimton and Alaris can see that they are runes. And I think both of you can also see that they're quite recent, actually. Like, you see loose ice shavings that are on the ground below them as you uh, go to investigate the doors. What language is it? It is in giant. The figures themselves seem as ancient as time itself and riddled with meaning. Hmm. You've seen these before in person at some point, I'm sure. Grim Give me 10 minutes. <laughs> Comprehend languages. Arik starts doing like some jumping jacks. Mm -hmm. Doing what they gotta do to stay warm. Yeah, do we have to read it to go inside? These look fresh. Oh. I mean, you know, more fresh than anything else here, at least. So... First, I'll, I'll do... Uh... Press the digitation. I'll try to make a, a fire. What do you use as fuel for the fire? Hmm. I don't or is know. this just like in the air? You're not trying to. Oh, uh, we have torches. <laughs> oh, yeah, you do have torches. I'll just light the torches. You get out a torch. Regardless, I'm going to use comprehend languages to learn to read giant. Cool. While you are waiting there, minding your own business. Dot, dot, that dot. phrase always implies that somebody else is about to not mind their own business. Everybody else, except for Alaris, give me perception checks, please. 10. 13. Oh, I was also 13. Grimton, your recognition of uh, the runes as giant captivate you as you're, you're watching this ritual be performed. Um, 
but Morlinde and Auric, y'all are looking around, and you begin to notice a warm fog rising up against the biting wind. Like steam, maybe? Steam? What on earth could be warm around here? What do you mean, Morlinde? There's steam. Roll initiative. I knew it! Morlinde and Auric, you do not have to wait out this surprise round. Cool. You know what? You did mention this out loud, and Grimton did uh, respond before I said roll initiative. So, congratulations. You successfully <laughs> warned the party. Yay! Uh, four, 14. I'm, I'm mad that uh, I wasted a perfectly good nat 20 on my oh, initiative man. roll. Um, so that's going to be 24, and I will also be taking advantage of Ambuscade. I rolled a 5. Yeah, 13. As the rest of you turn around, you watch as a creature like a jagged blue centipede of ice and fire bursts forth from the snowpack. A pair of wing-like fins flare from its neck. Its mouth opens wide enough to swallow you whole, showing jagged teeth. The cold air clouds around it like warm breath on a winter day. Grimton, you recognize us as a Remoraz, which is considered a prize in her dearth in the cloud-capped peaks. Remoraz eggs are frequently collected, the embryo inside them killed, and the shell preserved as a prize. The price of those eggs is sky high. One, because they're just so dang rare, and two, because collecting them takes them away from frost giants as pets. Oh no. Morlinde, you see another terrifying condor-like monstrosity swooping down at you with its talons forward. Atop its bone-white head is a set of huge antlers, and its mouth is a toothed beak. Morlinde, you've seen this creature before, or at least one like it, during your escape from Hawarum. It is a periton. that you said hoodoos because <laughs> that's a really cool landform. I love hoodoos. I don't know what a hoodoo is. What's that? Google it, you fool. Yeah. Oh. Everybody Google what a hoodoo I is. I didn't know that's what those were called. Oh. Ah. Like Wiley Coyote. Like very Wiley Coyote. Very Wiley Coyote. H-O-O-D-O-O. Uh, oh. So it's Jonah asking for spelling. That's not how I spelled it, but I got to the correct image anyway. <laughs> Google is, a, is an amazing thing when it comes to that. It can it takes all manner of uh, poor spellings and turns them into something coherent. Hoodoos are one of the uh, landforms that we 
are not required to learn about in Texas in fifth grade. Therefore, they are ignored, even though they're the And despite one. having hoodoos in Texas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. Uh, we only have to learn five landforms. Huh. Ah, I dropped my notes. Says next bee. I was just going to say, says next bee in the wind. <laughs> Those notes are probably long gone then. <laughs> no! Next bee uh, pulls the tyrant's bane around, brings it about, and catches it in midair. It's fantastic. You're amazed by her uh, skill and dexterity uh, at the yoke of this craft. When are we going to get somebody who will animate this? <laughs> <laughs> there are maybe a dozen war wagons. Armored with shields and steel. Uh, spikes and spears jet out in every direction. Uh, their, their yokes lay empty without anything ready to pull them. Uh, that's actually the second time I've said yoke today in this recording, which is unusual and a word that I notice. Yeah, that's, I think that's general spear tactics is like it's basically doubling your basically as tall as you are. Spear Tactics? I didn't watch that show. That sounds like a video game that I would play. <laughs> spear Tactics? I'd play Spear Tactics. I was thinking Scare Tactics. Oh. <laughs> Remember that show? No. Oh, really? I do not. Oh, man, it was this, um, it was like a prank show on, on, like, FX, but, like, rather than just, like, normal stuff that they, like, people would do on shows like that, like, punk or something, they would, like, scare the crap out of them with, like, monsters and you know horrifying like horror elements it's really pretty terrible to be honest the snowpack what is this <laughs> word <laughs> says joe about their own notes okay i'm gonna show this to uh to the camera hopefully you can see it there's a smear. ah the printer's the printer, the printer feeped me over. So I'm looking at, I'm looking at my Google Doc. It's funny. Uh, you can have access to this <laughs> Google Doc by becoming a $10 a month patron. You get to see all my notes. Uh, it's a very cool benefit. I'm a big fan. The last remainder of Call Us Forever Winter looms above you. The snowpack glints brightly. That was a word that I was trying to look for. Ah. Glint. The snowpack glints brightly in the late afternoon sun. Cloak of useful things. Oh yeah. yeah. It's a beautiful purple velvet. It was also reversible, so the velvet is on the outside because Joe hates the visual of lots of pockets. <laughs> I, I, I can't rightly make decisions for Zach uh, about Zach's character. Uh, Alaris, how do you how do you wear your <laughs> stupid the, cloak? The, the robe of useful things is awesome. It's okay that you don't like it. The pockets are in the inside. That's fine. Praise the gods. I'm feeling a little betrayed by my dice tonight. Yeah, you should. You have like three sets of dark silver dice. Use a different one. I have two sets, but one of them is my DM dice. It would feel wrong to use it as a player. I'll let you DM this next encounter. I can send you the notes real quick. Nah. <laughs> I can play Alric. Nah. Coward. <laughs>